priorities. Priority is the fact or condition of being regarded or treated as most important. What are your priorities? And if you can't quickly come up with them, your life actually declares them. What is most important to you? What do you treat as the most important reality in your life? I did a a quick search this past week on what are people's top priorities, and I came up with all kinds of lists, as you can imagine. Uh, Here's a quick sampling of what I found. One list read like this. Number one, academic grades. Who's excited about that? Okay, good. Maybe some of you will go to college. Uh, Self-entertainment came number two on this list. Relationships, safety, and freedom. Another list I found, this is nice, to enjoy every moment I can, to keep my parents happy, it's a good one, Uh, to get my dream career, to help people and animals. And the last one was my appearance. Uh, Here's another list, physical health, financial independence, family, self-development, society. Just society, whatever that means, this person is very concerned about society. One list actually argues, so it's not just like stating this is this person's, but one list actually argues, here are the top five priorities that every individual should have. Here they are, number one, health. Number two, relationships. Number three, security. Number four, development. And number five, play. I think it was written by a seven-year-old, okay? How do you analyze these lists? As you hear them read off, as you consider your priorities, what you regard as most important in your life, do your priorities match up with some, all, none of these priorities? Or would your list look completely different? You see, we all have priorities And even if when asked, we can't quickly state them, this, this, and this, if you look at our lives, the way that we spend our time, the way that we spend our money, the things that we think about, the things that we do, this declares our priorities. How we think about what is the most important reality in our lives will have drastic impact on the way that you and I order our lives. So please grab your Bible turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. You can use the table of contents if you're new to the Bible. Nobody will laugh at you if you do. If they do, take your right elbow and stick it into them as quickly as you can. Uh, If you do not know where it is, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's the fifth book in the Bible. Chapter 6 is after chapter 5 before chapter 7. As you're turning there, let me kind of give you a context so that we have a running start into our passage. So here's what we find in Deuteronomy 6. Uh, Moses, which is a man that God has used to lead his people out of 400 years of slavery, 
has been with the Israelites, has been with God's people in the wilderness for 40 years. Now you say, that doesn't sound like a great plan, taking people out of slavery and having them walk around in the desert for 40 years. And you would be right, except that the previous generation, that is all of the people before this new generation, they had an issue with priorities. You see, the generation before this new generation getting ready to enter into the land that God had promised to his people prioritized safety, comfort, and self-satisfaction. And because these were their priorities, it led them to fear people more than they trusted God. And this misappropriation of priorities had a drastic and disastrous impact on this entire generation. But now a new generation is standing on the brink of promise. They look out before them and they see this land that God had promised to them more than 430 years earlier. And as they're getting ready to enter into this land, Moses is reminding them of the priorities that they ought to have. You see, he reminds them of the covenant or the relationship that these people have with God. A covenant is just terms of a relationship. It's like one person promises these things in the relationship and the other person says, because you've promised that, I promise this. And that will be the terms of our relationship. So essentially, what God is doing is he's reminding his people of the relationship that he's promised to have with them And he's saying, and by the way, here's the kind of relationship that you've promised to have with me. So we get to Deuteronomy chapter six, and we're gonna read verses four through nine. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now these verses, this passage, has a really cool and fun name. It's called the Shema. Everybody say it because I know you want to. Just say Shema. Shema. It sounds, it feels something up here, right? It feels good, right? Just the Shema. Uh, It's called the Shema because the first word in Hebrew in this verse, verse 4, is Shema or hear or listen or obey. So it's a call for all of Israel, for all of God's people to hear the words that are about to be declared. Now this is a proclamation that the Jewish people would have made then and still many Jewish people today make and they often do this when they rise up in the morning and when they lie down at night with strict adherence to exactly what the word is saying. And so they will wake up in the morning and they will say, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then when they go to bed at night, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They declare this at the beginning and the end as bookends 
and they declare this priority that the Lord our God is the one that we should love with our all so that as the words come out of their mouth, their ears might hear it, and in the hearing of this proclamation, of the statement of this priority, their heart might embrace it. This is what we as God's people are called to now, to love the Lord our God with all. So Father, as we step into this passage this evening, as we begin this conference here, and as we surrender ourselves now under the authority of your word, I pray that you would speak powerfully through your word. Spirit of God, would you take the truths from this passage, would you press them into our hearts, and would you change the way that we think so that we might change the way that we live. God, would you do it for your glory and for our joy in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Deuteronomy 6.4 declares who God is. He is the Lord our God. That is, the one who is sovereign and reigning and ruling over all of life, and he is one. There is no God besides him. There is no one who can rival him. There is none that is equal. This is who our God is. And with a clear picture and a clear understanding of who this God is, then we are called to our relationship with him. God's calling on all of his people's lives seven words that change everything. You shall love the Lord your God. You shall love the Lord your God. Now don't breeze past this command without grasping the reality and the magnitude of this command. You see, it's nothing short of a command to love. Think of how insane this is. God's word is commanding us to love. What does it mean to love? Is it primarily an emotion or an action? The answer is yes. It's an emotion that comes from the very core of who we are that impacts every single one of our actions. I love my wife. I love my wife very much. She is my treasure. I would die for her. She is precious to me. I would not sell her for billions and billions of dollars. The same is true of my kids. And so my love reveals itself in the way that I treat my wife, in the way that I treat my kids, in the way that I live my life. If someone commanded me to stop loving them, I would be completely unable to obey. So you see, commanding a deep-seated emotion which determines what I treasure most in life is not easily obeyed. Watch this. Uh, I command you to love me. How's it going? Nope, nope not there, right? Uh, some of you are like, I've already been there. Uh, thank you, that's nice. Uh, but you didn't grow in your love for me simply because I commanded you to do it. Um, I command you to love salad. I command you to love golden doodles. This one's hard for me. This one's hard for me. Uh, my daughter, Everly, uh, my, my in-laws, Katie's parents, they just got a cat recently named Astro. 
and, and when you hear a, a sweet four-year-old little girl say, Astro, um, <laughs> it makes you for just one tiny second think about getting a cat, and then the Holy Spirit just rushes in and then all goes away. You see, I cannot be commanded to love cats just like we can't really be commanded to love anything. It's, it's actually impossible to obey the command to love. Think of how insane this is. This is the command for all of God's people. You are commanded to love the Lord your God. You see, because of this reality, it's actually been argued that love cannot be an emotion or an affection because you cannot command the emotions. But of course, the Lord, the Lord of all of life, including our emotions, can command the emotions. In fact, the Bible is filled with commands about emotions. Uh, we're commanded to fear, we're commanded to be thankful, we're commanded to be compassionate, we're commanded to be earnest, to hope, all of these are emotions. The fact that we are so corrupt and so dead in our sin that we can't do the right emotion is not God's problem. It's our problem. And if we're to obey the terms of this relationship with God, then we must obey the command to love him. But here's the problem. We've just demonstrated that it's impossible for us to muster up enough love for him. So here's what this means. It means that something outside of us must act in such a powerful and decisive way so as to completely transform our entire being, including our emotions. That something outside of me must occur and act upon me in such a dramatic way that it actually changes what I treasure, what I value most. Our dead, and stony hearts that are full of sin need to be removed and replaced with a new heart. Our dead and stony hearts that cannot love God, that cannot beat for the things of God, that cannot treasure God as we ought to treasure him, something must happen where that heart is removed and it's replaced with a heart that can love, that can beat for the things of God, that can treasure the things of God. This is the miracle of conversion. It's the miracle of the new birth. This is what the Bible talks about when we turn from our sin and trust in Jesus, that the great physician, the great surgeon actually comes in and he removes our heart of stone and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. We see it in Ezekiel 36, it's here on the screens. It says this, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See the connections here. When you turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus, God gives you a new heart. Your dead and stony heart that is full of sin is removed. The heart that was unable to feel the things of God, unable to treasure God, unable to love God is removed and then replaced with a new heart, a heart that can love God, that can embrace God as our greatest treasure. One that enables us to walk in God's ways and to walk in obedience to his commands, 
even his command to love. So if you are to make your relationship with God your number one priority, it will not be because you muster up enough willpower. Your making God your number one priority requires a miracle, a supernatural that is something that is above what is natural in this life must happen in your life And we can't conjure this up no matter how hard we try. God has to open our blind eyes and he has to soften our stony hearts. And he has to cause the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to shine into our lives in such a powerful way that we are no longer blinded to the love of God. But when the love of God is shining into our hearts, we can actually see. And then when we see the love that God has for us, we can respond to his love with love. This is what 1 John 4.19 says. It says, we love because he first loved us. And so if you and I are to love the Lord our God, if you and I are to make God our number one priority, it must be by God himself revealing his love for us and enabling us to see it in such a way that it is beautiful and compelling and true and then enabling us to embrace it in faith and turning from our sin. If you and I are to love God supremely, to treasure him above all else, then we must humble ourselves and we must cry out for God to do a radical transforming work in our hearts. We must see the love of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ and then the spirit of God must, res- must enable us to respond to that love with love. So when we see these seven words at the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter six, verse five, let's not breeze past them in self-sufficiency, in thinking that we can muster up love for God, but let's instead be humbled by this reality and cry out and ask the Lord to save us from our dead and stony and sinful hearts. And if he's already done that, then let's ask the Lord that he would, by the power of the Spirit, continue to root out sin and to make us slaves to righteousness and obedient to his commands, even the command to love. Deuteronomy 6.5 is not just a miraculous calling that requires the decisive work of God, It's a call to love the Lord our God, but it's a call to love the Lord our God with all. Look at the verse, verse five, please. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all. All your heart, all your soul, all your might. What does it mean to love the Lord our God with all? All heart, all soul, Almighty, to love the Lord our God with all our heart means to love God with everything that makes up my inner being. My heart, my emotions, my affections, my desires, my thoughts, my attitudes, all of it. When the Bible talks about the heart, it talks about it being the control center of our inner being, our inner person. And we are to love the Lord our God with all. Everything that comprises our inner being is to love the Lord our God. 
It has to begin here as the Spirit of God renovates our hearts. These are the parts of us that we don't have complete control over, but we can certainly influence based on what we feed our minds on. Friends, that's what the Think Conference is all about. It's about being transformed in our inner being and then seeing that transformation begin to radiate into every other sphere of our lives. That as we think about truth, as we know truth and learn truth and meditate on truth, and as we come to value truth and love truth and embrace truth, that it actually changes us at our very core, at our very identity, at the very base of who we are. We must immerse ourselves in the word of God and feed our hearts and minds on the truth of God's word. And as we ponder God's ways and as we see him reveal himself to us in his word, our desires, our attitudes, our emotions, our thoughts change. You see, if I think I'm the most important person in the world, then everything that doesn't serve my satisfaction will cause me to complain, to get angry, or to be depressed. My heart can only be changed by the Spirit of God working through the Word of God, by the Spirit of God working through other people's lives in my life, and through the circumstances in my life. If I'm to love the Lord my God with all my heart, then the Spirit of God does this through the truth of God's Word. Second, we're to love the Lord our God with all our soul. To love the Lord our God with all our soul is to love God with our whole being. This includes our hearts, our brains, our emotions, our attitudes, our affections, our desires, our thoughts, but then it also includes our bodies and our actions and our reactions and our words. Our entire being is to love the Lord our God including our heart and also our body, our actions, our reactions, and our words. Does the way I think about my body and use my body demonstrate that I love God? Am I obsessed with my body image because I want people to think a certain way about me? Does the way that I take care of my body demonstrate that I love God? Or what about pleasure? Do I love pleasure more than I love God? Do my actions, all of my actions, demonstrate a love for God? What about this? If someone had a written transcript of every word you uttered today, or every word that you uttered this week, and if they were to read over that and see every word that came out of your mouth, would a love for God be evident? Oh, dear friends, it would not be perfect. And there would be many spots where we could have already repented to the Lord of or still need to. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about characteristically looking at the whole, actions, words, reactions. Does it demonstrate that I love God? You see, I love God with all my heart my inner being, I love God with my soul, that is my entire being, and then it's also a call to love God with all your might. To love God with all your might is to love God with every resource that you have at your disposal. To love God with all your might is to love God with 
all of the substance of your life, all of your possessions, all of your relationships, all of your stuff, your phone, the things that you value, everything. Do you see these resources, these substances, as something to declare, I love God? And the way that you use these things, does it demonstrate that Jesus is my greatest treasure? Why do I wear the things that I wear? How much stuff do I actually need? Does my communication with others on my phone via call or text or social media show my overwhelming love for God? Does what I look at on my phone fit with what I say about my relationship with God? You see, to love God with all, all your heart, all your soul, and all your might, this is the supreme command, and it is the first step in a Godward life. Verses six through nine begin to show how obeying this command, having God as our supreme love, making our relationship with God the number one priority, impacts every sphere of our lives. That this love for God and a life controlled by the love of God becomes the content and the substance of what I proclaim to the most intimate and important relationships in my life. That my relationships become characterized by this supreme love. Look at verse six with me, please. It says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You see, loving God with my all is something that I should do all the time. Loving God with my all is something that I should do all the time. It's when I sit down, that is when I'm not active, when I'm not caught up in the frenetic activity of the day, when I'm not engaging myself with all the things that are going on. When I'm just simply being, my being should be consumed with a passionate love for God. It says, and when you walk on the way, that is when you go throughout the normal course of your day as you're engaging yourself in the normal activities that you do in the different responsibilities that God has sovereignly entrusted to you at this time in your life, are those all consumed with your passionate love for God? And is each of those interactions marked by a love for the Lord? It says, when I lie down, that is at night when I go to sleep and as I consider my day and I run my day through this lens of has everything that I've done today been done in the love of God and for the love of God? And even as I lay here in my bed, will I end my day loving the Lord my God by declaring to the Lord how great and how wonderful and how faithful he's been this day? And then when I rise up the next morning, do I rise up in the love of God? Do I rise up consumed with a singular priority to love God with this day that he's given me? so that all of my time from when I rise to when I lie down, whether I'm being or whether I'm going, is characterized by my love for God. Look at verse eight, please. It says, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. 
You see, our allegiance to God ought to govern the nature of all of our actions. So when it says uh, putting them as a sign on your hand, uh, have you ever just written something on your hand at school because you didn't want to forget it? And so you put it there, it's on your hand because you know in all of your actions and all of your activity for the day, you're gonna be extending your hand and as soon as your hand gets in front of your face, you're gonna see it and you're gonna be reminded and it's a priority and it's important and you gotta get it done. And that's what this is talking about. It's binding it as a sign on our hands. Uh, it's like putting it right in front of us and every time I extend my hand to act or to interact with others, it's characterized by the love of God. It says that it also ought to be bound as frontlets between our eyes. Uh, what they used to do, and some Jewish guys still do it now today, is uh, they would take maybe this verse or another verse, and they would write it out on a piece of parchment. They would roll it up. They would put it in like a little treasure box, something that looks like, like what we put teeth in. Um, kind of weird. Uh, and then they take a little rope, and they actually take the little box, they put it on their forehead, and then they tie it around their head. So everybody take your hand and do this. Okay, so that everything that they're doing has this passage of scripture right in front of them. It's literally on the forefront of their mind. So that when they're looking out, when they're doing all of life, this is what they see. And they see it right in front of them so that everything is characterized by their love for God. And what Moses is saying and what God is commanding is that our love for the Lord ought to be like frontlets between our eyes. That it ought to be right here, right in front of us, the very first thing that we run every interaction through that lens. See, I love God with my all, all the time, and in all things. Finally, verse nine. says, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house, and on your gates. That is that my love for God with my all should permeate every sphere of my life. That I should love God with my all in all places. It says on the doorposts of your house. That is in private. When no one else is looking, when you're in the privacy of your own home or the privacy of your own room or the privacy of your own cell phone or the privacy of whatever, does that declare, I love God? And then it says, and you should also write it on the city gates, that is, in the midst of the community, in the midst of all the people, no matter what, whether I'm at church, whether I'm at school, whether I'm at home, in every place, my life should be characterized by an all-consuming love for God. This passage here in Deuteronomy chapter six is calling us to a life-encompassing, community-embracing, and exclusive commitment that makes my life radically God-centered. Radically God-centered. That everything that I have, in everything that I am, in every setting that I'm in, at every time should exclaim, this is my God. I love Jesus and God is my everything. Brothers and sisters, friends, this is what it means to love God with our all, with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might. And this is what God is commanding us to do. And as you hear all of that, and as you think about today, as you think about this week, the first things that come to your heart and your mind are all of the areas in which you're falling short.
don't forget the miraculous reality that must take place and the confidence that we can have that because of the truths from Ezekiel 36 that the Holy Spirit of God actually comes into our hearts and he enables us to increase and to grow in these realities that as life progresses I continue to root out sin I continue to make war with my sin I continue to grow in my hatred for sin and as I do that I'm able to see the beauty of the Lord and the glory of the Lord and the truth of the Lord and I'm drawn to that and I'm compelled to that and I increase over time in godliness as I continue to grow in my love for the Lord. Matthew 22, Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? What does he say? He says this, the greatest commandment, the supreme commandment, the priority commandment, commandment number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It's foundational to the Christian life and it's priority number one. If you get this wrong, you get it all wrong. If you miss this, you miss the Lord. Francis Chan wrote a book, it's called Crazy Love. He has a chapter called Profile of the Obsessed. He begins to describe the person that loves God most and I wanted to read a few of those descriptions that he gives. So just listen to this and consider your life. A person that loves God most is characterized by committed, settled, passionate love for God above and before every other thing and every other being. A person that loves God most has an intimate relationship with him. They are nourished by God's word throughout the day because they know that 40 minutes on a Sunday is not enough to sustain them for the whole week, especially when they will have so many distractions and alternative messages. People who love God most know that the best thing they can do is be faithful to the Savior in every aspect of their life. They know that there can never be intimacy with God, hear this, they know that there can never be intimacy with God if they are always trying to pay God back or work hard enough to be worthy. Rather, they revel, they rejoice in their role as children and friends of God. People who love God most aren't consumed with their personal safety and comfort above all else. They care more about God's kingdom coming to this earth than their own lives being shielded from pain or distress. So let's pause and let's ask and really consider, do you, do I love God with all? All my heart, my inner being, all my soul, my entire being, and all my might, everything that God has given to me, does it all declare, this is my God, and this is the God that I love. Is your relationship the singular, most important relationship in the world? Is your relationship with God? And does your relationship with God take priority? Does the way that you spend your time and the way that you conduct your life accurately reflect this as your supreme love. 
You see, because if we don't get this one right, Jesus goes on in Matthew 22, he says, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you think about the 10 commandments, the first four of them are all about loving God. No gods before me, no idols, not using the Lord's name in vain, keeping the Sabbath. The next six are all about loving God by loving others, right? Honor your father and mother. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. All of those are relationships that we have with others. So if we don't get a relationship with God right, then every other relationship in our life will be negatively impacted. That if you want to love others in your life well, it begins with a primal love, a supreme love, a priority love of the Lord your God. Your love for God is the stream from which your love for others flows. If your relationship with God is not priority, if you don't have the right relationship with God, then you're going to struggle to have a good relationship with your parents. If you don't have a right relationship with God, then your relationship with your friends is gonna be off. You may still have some comforts and enjoyments, but ultimately, these relationships will not be founded upon genuine love. If your relationship with God is not priority number one and it's not healthy, then your relationship with your future spouse will be filled with undue burden and struggle. You cannot love others well if you're not loving God first and most. People who love God most take joy in loving God and in loving others. This is what all of this looks like. If you were to put it all in a picture, uh, this is a picture of us with our dead and stony hearts. Our lives, our inner being, our outer being, and everything that emanates from who we are is characterized by our selfish and sinful hearts. And everything in life is all about me. And even the things that I do that seem loving and serving of others ultimately are about serving me. I want others to like me. I want others to give me what I want. And so I do all of these things. And then the light of the gospel of God shines into our lives. And in that moment, everything changes. I no longer have a dead and stony heart like this. But when the light of the gospel comes, the next slide, and then my heart begins to look like this on the next slide, and everything is radically transformed. No longer am I filled with selfishness. Do I see self as supreme? But God is supreme, and my love for him begins to characterize every other reality in my life. And my life becomes filled with fruit of the Spirit of God doing a transforming work in me so that I can genuinely love and experience genuine joy and that my relationships can be characterized by kindness and gentleness and self-control. That goodness would be flowing forth from me into the lives of others. And this cannot happen unless the Spirit of God does it in us decisively at conversion and then throughout the rest of our lives through the process of sanctification. And when Jesus becomes the greatest treasure of my life, it has a massive impact on my relationship with my parents. 
And so as I walk by the way and as I sit and as I rise up and as I lie down and as I interact with my parents, everything changes. I'm able to love my parents as I ought to. I'm able to obey my parents with genuine joy. I'm able to have humility with my parents and learn from them and listen to them. My relationship changes with my friends. And every single relationship that I have begins to be characterized by my supreme love for God and then I can selflessly and genuinely pour out love for others. My relationship changes with my future spouse if the Lord would have that for you someday. And so now, your life characterized by the love of God, you're actually able to live the biblical picture of marriage in a way that God designed it. Brothers and sisters, this is all about loving God with our all. That he would be our supreme love. And so as you sit here tonight, as you consider your relationship with the Lord, for some of you, maybe you don't have one. Maybe you came with a friend or maybe you've been coming to church for a while with your family. Uh, Maybe you've grown up and heard a lot of this, but you've never had a moment where uh, you've come to a place and said, I love the Lord with my all. Um, The Spirit of God is the one who brings about that transformation and he does it by you turning from your sins and trusting in Jesus and treasuring Jesus above all else. And then from there, as we look at our lives and we consider our hearts, we consider our souls, we consider our stuff, what of it is surrendered to and exclaims, I love God? And what of it is still steeped in self? And that we can be asking the God in his gentleness, in his kindness, in his love for us as children to continue to transform in us so that it would be directed towards the supreme love of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we recognize that this call on our lives to love you with our all is a massive and magnificent command. And in your goodness and in your kindness, you do a work in our lives by the power of the Spirit to enable us to embrace Jesus as our greatest treasure. Father, I pray for these students, for these leaders, for each person in this room, myself, oh God. We know that we do not love you as we ought to love you. And how significantly we fall short of loving you in the way that you are worthy of being loved. God, as all of us sit here tonight, we consider areas of our lives where we are falling short And then we quickly turn our eyes to the Savior, to Jesus, who loved you perfectly, Father. Infinitely and eternally loved you. And then the good news is that his love for you can be imputed, that is, given or transferred to our account, that when we turn from our sin and trust in that Jesus, his love for you is counted as our love for you. And then, Spirit, you do the work in our hearts and in our lives to continue to grow us in love for you each day as we rise and as we lie down.
Oh God, I pray that we would be a people that are marked by a supreme love for Jesus Christ and that that love and that relationship would characterize and condition every other relationship and every action of our lives so that we can truly be a people whose lives and priorities and hearts and all is declaring Jesus is glorious and Jesus is my greatest treasure. It's in his name we pray. Amen.